Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined as always by Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. Hannah, how is the Pacific Northwest treating you? You've settled in? It's doing great. It's still very beautiful out, waiting for the rainy season to start. I thought it was always the reading season. Yeah, isn't that just a perennial thing? <laughs> it's actually like the secret of the Pacific Northwest is that it's like beautiful for five months in the summer. That it's is like a secret that I've, not, I've never heard. <laughs> and uh, Avi, how about the middle of the country? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. My wife and I are training for a half marathon. So that's our sort of current project, which has been fun. And as discussed, I'm uh, going to be on call tonight, which I've renamed the Hour Hour when you're on call for leukemia overnight. <laughs> if, you're, if a pager goes off. Yeah, during the, the episode. Hour, hour. Precisely. So, but tonight we are going to talk about one of these questions in medicine that has an answer hiding in plain sight or that people might have taken for granted. We're going to tackle a topic that involves both the brain and the gut, which is why can a ketogenic diet help control seizures in refractory epilepsy? I will admit I had not thought about it before. Avi, what, what made you interested? You know, not being a neurologist myself, I, I learned about this back in medical school about the use of ketogenic diets in epilepsy uh, when I was on my neurology clerkship when I cared for someone who had severe refractory epilepsy. And part of their care plan was being on a ketogenic diet. And I remember thinking that that was like, it was just so fascinating, but also sort of magical. Like we're going to take someone with epilepsy. And then we're going to put them on this very specific diet with the expectation that that's going to reduce their seizure burden along with all of the anti-epileptic drugs that they're on. Like, why would a ketogenic diet even do that? It definitely does not seem intuitive uh, to me. I mean, you can imagine some dietary therapies that make sense, right? Okay, you have scurvy, you give a lime, lemon, something with vitamin C. You've got uh, diabetes mellitus, you put somebody on a um, sort of low-carbohydrate diet. But like this one is not one that immediately comes to mind. So I'm I'm fascinated to to sort of hear more about like like where did this even come from? Totally. You know, another example of dietary therapy that comes to mind for me as a pulmonologist are low fat diets to treat chylothoraces, where there's a chylus leak into the pleural space that causes this pleural effusion, and reducing the dietary fat intake can reduce the flow of chyle into the space, help prevent the effusion from reaccumulating. I had never heard of that, but that does make so much sense. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've seen one chylothorax, so the idea that I would like know anything about it is well, pretty Well, it can even get very specific, even like beyond a low fat, it can even get into like medium chain triglycerides and stuff. Like it, it can get like actually very specific with this stuff, but in general, it's just a low fat diet. <laughs> All right. Well, first new thing to learn today, but let's come back to defining the ketogenic diet since I think not everyone might know what it is. Absolutely. Ketogenic diets are high in fats and very low in carbohydrates. The high fat diet leads to increased serum free fatty acids, which have come up surprisingly often on our podcast over the years. But these free fatty acids get metabolized in the liver to acetyl CoA and then to acetoacetyl CoA. And acetoacetyl CoA gets converted to three types of ketones or ketone bodies acetoacetate, acetone, and beta hydroxybutyrate. And these ketones can get used as cellular mitochondrial fuel via the Krebs cycle, which is um, really important. If you're taking a diet that is ultra low in carbohydrates, you need a source of fuel. You know, it sounds like, as the way you described it, that a ketogenic diet mimics a starvation state. And it kind of reminds me of the starvation ketosis that all of us see in the hospital setting. 
and that's you know related to ketone bodies in the blood in someone who has either malnutrition in a short-term setting or a long-term setting. Is that kind of the same idea? Yeah, I mean, even just when someone is fasting, you know, for example, I recently fasted on Yom Kippur. That's 25 hours of no food or water. So by hour 24, I am definitely running on ketones in addition to some, you know, glycogen mobilization. And a ketogenic diet, it actually does induce a state of sort of pseudo starvation. You know, the body is tricked into thinking that resources and food are scarce since it's used to using glucose as the primary metabolic fuel. But instead, you've got these ketones floating around and being used to fuel cellular energetics and stuff like that. And you know, up until the 1920s when insulin was discovered, ketosis was really thought to be itself primarily harmful since diabetic ketoacidosis was such a dangerous state before the you know before the discovery of insulin. Yeah, but even now if I'm in in the hospital and I see somebody who's got, you know, ketones on a UA or a positive beta hydroxybutyrate I'm not usually thinking good things. I'm still typically thinking something is awry. So we've kind of updated our thinking, but for many people, myself included, ketosis doesn't usually mean health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we certainly use it um, as a sometimes as as a marker of, of something else going on. Right. Um, it doesn't itself necessarily indicate you know a problem. Exactly. In and of itself, ketosis right. isn't a bad right. thing. It's like what is driving yeah. that ketosis? Yeah. I'm very, very thankful for it. Having, you know, like I said, just come out of a 25 hour fast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it has the, you know, something that we probably would have labeled an ill humor or a bad humor. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Several <laughs> centuries ago. Um, if when you see it on a UA or something. So yeah, it seems very unintuitive that someone would have thought this would be a great treatment for epilepsy. Can you tell us how did this start? How did this idea come to be? So the first inklings didn't have anything to do with ketogenic diets specifically, but rather starvation. In the early 1920s, there was this physician from Michigan named Hugh Conklin, who incorrectly theorized that epilepsy originated in the intestines. And he thought he might be able to cure it by starving patients. So that was sort of his logical leap. So he took children with epilepsy he starved them for up to 25 days, giving them only a minimal amount of liquid nourishment. And lo and behold, this starvation state, it did help control their seizures, both during the fasting period and even sometimes for several months afterward, there was a durable effect. And these results got reported at the 1921 American Medical Association Convention. Soon after that, a physician at the Mayo Clinic named Russell Wilder realized that starvation itself might not be what was controlling the epilepsy, but rather the ketotic state that he knew would be induced by the starvation that Conklin had done. And so Wilder tried an intervention of feeding epileptic children a diet high in fat and low in carbohydrates to sort of mimic a starvation state and found that it was just as effective as actual starvation in reducing seizure, seizure burden and the ketogenic diet was, was sort of born. You really got to hand it to you know, people like Russell Wilder, who who comes up with the realization that it, you know it ain't the starvation itself, but rather the ketosis. Like those like sparks of of like incisive observation, yeah. brilliance. Are, are yeah. Just, yeah, it's really amazing. But do we have any like clinical trials to assess the efficacy of the ketogenic diet in epilepsy? Because obviously, you know, if, if you're going to do something like this, which ain't easy, you're, you're really going to want, I think, strong data. The first formal trial was a 1924 study, so you know, pretty soon after these you know, very initial reports came out. And it was also done at the Mayo Clinic. They treated 17 epileptic patients with a ketogenic diet, and of those 17, 10 became seizure-free. 
And it was soon clear that the ketogenic diet was more effective at preventing seizures than the sort of epileptics available at the time, which were like bromides and phenobarbital. So, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, that's what they had. Ketogenic diets was it was very impactful for patients. Um, and subsequent studies confirmed that the ketogenic diet works, particularly for reducing seizure burden in children with epilepsy. There was a 2020 Cochrane review that found that the preponderance of evidence shows that a ketogenic diet can significantly benefit seizure burden in kids with epilepsy. And you know, when like if you look at their risk ratio plot, that little diamond that they use, it's like strongly in the favors ketogenic diet side of the plot. So the ketogenic diet, it is still sometimes used for difficult to control epilepsy if seizure burdens persist despite appropriate anticonvulsant therapy. So, I mean, thankfully in 2023, we have a lot of better medical options than just phenobarbital and bromides, but it seems like the ketogenic diet is still used in some cases. Very cool. So yeah, I think we've overall moved from no carbs to carbamazepine as a first line. Um, but it sounds like overall, there is pretty good data that it is potentially effective to prevent epileptic seizures, especially in kids, even if we don't use it as much. So let's come back to the mechanism. Why, how, gut brain, uh, connect them for us. So why would the ketogenic diet have an impact on seizure burden? That's exactly why I wanted to learn more about it. This connection just didn't make sense to me on the superficial sort of face validity level, but it clearly works. So what's going on? The main proposed mechanisms involve three things, glycolysis, a shunt, and acetone. So some some zingers to, to start with. You know, if you, if you said to me, Tony, we get to talk about three things tonight, glycolysis, a shunt, and acetone, I would be like, all right, that, that's it for the evening, everybody. Uh, <laughs> We're done. So, yeah. um, given the option, I'm going to take a shunt for 500, Alex. Let's talk about that first. I would start with it too. So there is something called the GABA shunt. Uh, GABA or gamma. Well, hold on. If you if you had started with it's called the GABA shunt, I might have taken it like easily first. <laughs> Would have been for a thousand. It would have been for a thousand. Yeah, you were slow playing the shunt here. (laughs) Fair enough. So, you know, so GABA is, um, uh, its chemical name is gamma aminobutyric acid. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. So, as you might expect with an inhibitory neurotransmitter, increased GABA signaling can suppress seizures. As a related aside, the drug gabapentin is a synthetic GABA analog and was first developed in the 1970s and 80s to treat seizures. Although ironically, it actually doesn't signal through GABA receptors, which is sort of, you know, not intuitive, but back to the GABA shunt, it turns out that ketones are converted in the brain to both glutamine and acetyl-CoA. Glutamine is converted to glutamate and then GABA. So having more acetyl-CoA helps drive that glutamate to GABA conversion forward even more strongly. And in effect, shunts ketones into becoming GABA. So that's the GABA shunt. Okay. So more ketones in the brain, more GABA, lower seizure threshold, or excuse me, lower seizure likelihood. So um, that's that seems to be the shunt. What about the other uh, hypotheses that you mentioned? Yeah. And it's worth mentioning all three explanations are, as you said, hypotheses, mechanistic theories. Nothing's really proven. The first sort of non-shunt related mechanism we'll talk about is the metabolic hypothesis. And this relates to the notion that decreasing glucose-based metabolism in the brain may actually itself have anticonvulsant effects. And there's animal data supporting 
the anticonvulsant effects of avoiding glucose-based brain metabolism. So uh, glucose-based brain metabolism. There was a 2006 study in Nature Neuroscience where the researchers found that giving rats with temporal lobe epilepsy, a compound that inhibits glycolysis, protected them against seizures. The compound was 2-deoxy-D-glucose that basically would sort of gum up glycolysis, and it would protect these rats against seizures. So as we know, you know, glycolysis is dependent on glucose to work. So blocking glycolysis effectively blocks glucose-based metabolism. Or I guess in this case, it would be like avoiding glycolysis. I'm interested in reducing the seizure burden of the rats with temporal lobe epilepsy, but I'm also interested <laughs> in reducing the burden um, in sort of you know humans. And so do we have clinical data supporting this, the metabolism hypothesis or metabolism mechanism? Yeah, there is. A small clinical trial from 2005 looked at using a low glycemic index diet as an alternative to the ketogenic diet in patients with intractable epilepsy. So in this situation, carbohydrate intake was more liberalized than a ketogenic diet, but it's restricted to foods that don't significantly raise the blood glucose. So they put 20 patients on this low glycemic index diet, and the majority did have reduction in seizure burden, and 10 patients of those 20 had a 90% or more reduction in their seizure frequency. So I mean, again, these were patients with intractable epilepsy. This at least on a small scale supports the notion that decreasing glucose-based metabolism is probably contributory to how the ketogenic diet is working, you know, because these patients weren't technically on a ketogenic diet. And I have to assume that it's 2005, we have good anticonvulsants. If they're getting into a trial like this, they're, they're, as you said, they've got intractable epilepsy. The fact that you can get like a 90% reduction in half the patient, that, that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, it is remarkable. Yeah. It's also an elegant way to sort of isolate the glucose versus the ketosis piece of it. Right. So what is the mechanism of how kind of separate from the whole ketotic, the shunt piece, avoiding glucose-based metabolism would be potentially helpful? So the mechanistic basis for this sort of metabolic mechanism, it seems to be related to the impacts of slow versus fast neuronal cellular fuel. I sort of think of seizures as this like fast-moving electrical storm in the brain, and it needs metabolic fuel to sustain it. And glucose provides that fast cellular fuel. It can get rapidly metabolized initially by glycolysis and then the slower Krebs cycle. So from you know glycolysis, you can get some ATP generated right away, you know, even in the cytosol. Whereas with ketones, they only get metabolized via the Krebs cycle in mitochondria. So a neuron will get plenty of ATP from a ketone, but it won't get it quite as quickly as with glucose. So ketones are a slower cellular fuel source, I guess. And perhaps less likely to support a seizure. It's somewhat reminiscent of the Warburg effect in cancer, where cancer cells preferentially use glucose and glycolysis, you know, have AT mm. production that sort of more than meets their needs because of this idea that, you know, glycolysis is potentially a, a way to rapidly produce that ATP product. I, I don't know if, if there's any similarities between these two phenomena. Because they're like, like they're growing so fast, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I wonder if you would see a difference on PET, like well, PET, FDG, PET imaging. Well, there are many people who are, are proponents of using ketogenic diets for cancer for this exact reason. Really the exact same mechanism, right? Let's starve the cancer by you know, giving them only ketones to work with. Right. Um, Though I think we should say that that does not seem to have an evidence base currently. Are you an oncologist in fellowship training, Hannah? <laughs> I am not. It's mostly just, oh, I hate seeing cancer patients feel like they're not allowed to have ice cream. But well, I, know, uh, I know, yeah. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not advocating a ketogenic diet, but yeah, there's certainly sorry. people who have uh, attempted. Yes, to there do definitely something. is that theory out there. Yeah. 
All right, Avi, I must ask, what is going on with acetone? What about and, acetone? And, and how does it have its own hypothesis? You know, so interestingly, when we, when we talk about the ketogenic diet, we're talking about several different types of ketones that get produced. Like we mentioned at the outset, acetoacetate, acetone, beta-hydroxybutyrate. But it appears that only acetone has direct evidence of anticonvulsant properties. And one possible explanation for that might be that it, because it crosses the blood-brain barrier more easily than the other types of ketones. So like it's the one that's more likely to actually have an effect in the brain. And a 2003 experiment in rats showed that acetone, if injected intraperitoneally, was protective against multiple different types of induced seizures in the animals with a dose-response relationship. So the more acetone the rats received, the more they were protected from seizures. And they tried to induce all these different types of seizures. And no matter which type, the more acetone the rats got, the more they were protected. So this suggests that acetone, or I guess perhaps a metabolite of acetone, is a prime component of how the ketogenic diet helps suppress epileptic seizures. Do you have any sense for why they injected it intraperitoneally? I don't know if that's the easiest way to give it. Yeah. I don't I don't do research in rats. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no one should be drinking acetone. So Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I have no idea if you like give it via IV infusion. I don't know what happens. So it, I'm sure, obviously there's a there's a good explanation, but none of the three of us are sort of in the lab doing this. So I was just curious. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That seems like of our three of our shunt glycolysis and acetone, that is the one with the most room for further development, it seems. But <laughs> yeah. it's kind of an interesting study. Avi, did you learn anything else that kind of like came up while you were looking into this? So there was one sort of final spare key that I felt like maybe is actually the coolest thing that I learned about actually in all of this. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of medical history. And one thing that I didn't realize was that treating epilepsy with dietary therapy is actually one of the oldest medical interventions that's still in use today. So as far back as 500 BC, the Hippocratic Collections, they mention making dietary modifications as a treatment for seizures. And incredibly, they specifically discuss the benefits of fasting. Like all the way back in ancient Greece, they were using fasting and probably using the ketogenic diet without realizing they were to treat epilepsy thousands of years before we had effective anti-epileptics. So it's truly, you know, the ketogenic diet and epilepsy, it's truly an ancient intervention, which I was really blown away by that. Props to Hippocrates. Yeah, but did Hippocrates uh, uh, inject acetone into the peritoneal cavity? Because, you know, if he didn't, come on. Not quite the cutting edge. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> he's, only, he's only thousands of years ahead of his time. All right, Javi, this is someone who doesn't treat patients with epilepsy very often or seizure disorder very often. This was kind of very eye-opening. What take-home points do you have for us? So ketogenic diets can be an effective intervention in addition to anti-seizure medications and refractory epilepsy. And the proposed mechanisms include the metabolic hypothesis, the acetone hypothesis, and GABA shunting. And I guess the, the final point would be sort of like a quote from Ecclesiastes, right? Like there's nothing new under the sun. As far back as 500 BC in ancient Greece, it was observed that fasting can help prevent seizures. So using dietary therapy and epilepsy is actually quite ancient. Fantastic. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. 
You can also subscribe to our Substack at thecuriousclinicians.substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from BCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.bcuhealth.org slash curiousclinician. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians.